0: Welcome to the Current Bun Energy Podcast, sponsored by Weidman Electrical Technology. With me, marketing extraordinaire Francis Fisher, joined each month by my colleague, electrical engineer, IEEE Medallion Award winner and wearer, Tom Prevost. We're not your regular energy podcast. Yes, we like to discuss all things generation, transmission and distribution, but we also like to have a good laugh along the way joined by special guests who give us their unique industry insight peppered with segments such as touch my components which is exactly as it sounds along with beer of the month from tom we hope you enjoy the podcast as much as we enjoy making it if you like to see a grown man with a napkin on his face touching a snout then this could be the energy podcast for you So join us at Current Bun Energy Podcast, subscribe below to get the latest news, and join us across other social media platforms. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you're listening, and welcome to the very first edition of the Current Bun Energy Podcast with me, Francis Fisher, aka Frankie, and my co-host here today, Thomas Prevo. Okay, Tom. So without further ado Tom please tell us a bit about yourself. I know you but our listeners may don't.
1: Okay so my name is Tom Privo. I live in uh, a small town called St. Johnsbury Vermont uh, in a place that has been called the Northeast Kingdom. Mm. But it, it's a beautiful place in the in the northeast part of Vermont uh, that I've been born and raised here and uh I've had the pleasure of working at Weidman for most of my career. So, yeah, yeah. So, I'm an electrical engineer. Uh, I went to school at Virginia Tech uh, many years ago and have been working, worked at Weidman for almost 32 years now. So, I would say my strong background from an engineering standpoint is electrical insulating materials focusing primarily on transformers. I did work for a company called Omicron for some time. That's not the Omicron that makes uh, the, the virus. Hmm. And, but uh, they're a company that makes test equipment. So I, I was able to broaden my horizon and and work on yeah sub, anything in a substation or, or generating
0: plant. And I believe when you had a full head of hair and a mustache, you worked in Florida for a utility.
1: You're absolutely right. My first job out of... Uh, College. Also, I when I was a, a few pounds later too. So my first job out of college, I worked for a Tampa Electric Company, and uh, actually I was the guy that they would send into the generator to do the inspections because at that time I was the smallest guy on the crew. Um, mm-hmm. Many years. Yeah, I don't know. Many years, I mean, and many of on that. On that. Yeah, yeah. What
0: does inspecting a generator mean? I have no idea what that means.
1: Well, there's a spot between the, what's called the stator winding and the outer uh, shell of the generator that's actually filled with hydrogen. And you are able to see the laminations of the core, uh, which can get displaced over time. So what they did is they would tie a rope around my feet and then I would use my hands to crawl into the space with light and inspection thing. And then uh, when I couldn't stand it anymore, I wiggled my feet, and they would pull the rope and pull me out of the the generator. Yeah,
0: and in the, I mean, in the 1940s, there weren't really as many health and safety uh, <laughs> regulations. You're funny. I'm not that uh, not that old, Francis. Well, as interesting as that is, I'm sure at some point I'll learn to understand what a laminated winding window view is. But I doubt it. No, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely true. Well, let me explain that. So, of course, Tom's presented us his illustrious career as a, an electrical engineer and specialist in insulation. And uh, unfortunately, I have to say that I come from the marketing background. I've worked in the energy industry, starting out my time in Australia, of all places, working for a local Australian technology company who were developing Solutions for the distribution network, power, power quality analyzers through to linefall indicators, and selling them through Australia. And basically, I started out there and have worked in a bunch of sales, product and marketing roles. And now, as we talked about, we're both employees of Weidman Electrical Technology. And for those of you who can see us right out this window, you can see um, the Weberman board machine running hot in St. Johnsbury. Here at the end of uh, the end of fall and uh, you may also hear for those listening some background noise a few honking is that the American term honking yeah honking of the horns yeah my mother always used to say pipping you know those Italian horns in Europe you know it sounds more like a pip than a honk (laughs) but uh, anyway you may hear uh, some of those honking horns behind us at the vaulted truck so We are here, and as Tom says, it's a working site. It's a working
1: site, and the fork trucks have right away, so make sure that you listen for the honking.
0: Exactly. All right, well, let's get into some news to start with. So I was having a little look through the news this week, and of course, being a marketing guy, the thing that caught my eye was self-healing networks that Duke Energy were promoting, and they were referencing... Basically, the hurricane that went through a few weeks ago in Florida and and decimated parts of the coastline on the Gulf side there, and and basically, you know, we saw hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people without energy for periods of time. And Duke were basically saying self healing networks could certainly help in times like that, in in faster restoration or or no outage at all, but. Right. I mean, self-healing networks, it sounds like something from a sci-fi movie or uh, uh, the future. And I don't always associate our engineering groups with that. So, I mean, the question is for you, what the hell is a self-healing network? Are we going to see power lines pick themselves back up off the floor and
1: reconnect? Yeah, I think it's a pretty generous use of the of the term. What you have to understand is what a non-self-healing network is first and then back into that. So traditionally, uh, most of our distribution grid is very simply designed. And the protection of the grid is done with, in in many cases, particularly in rural areas where I think this applies, you, up up on the power lines, you will have what's called a cutout. And this cutout is basically a fuse and a fuse is a device that will activate if you have a fault on the line. So, in the storm, typically that's when you have a tree fly, fall across the line or, or the pole falls down and the line hits the ground. And if you don't clear a fault, then the power is just going to go where it wants to. That's just the way electricity is. And we're, I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot in our conversations. Power in my education. And your education. Thank but you. pow- power ultimately wants to find ground. Hmm. And if it doesn't have an unimpeded path to ground, then all the power that you want to have available on the system to use, you know, to heat your house or for your microwave charge your or car. charge your car, is just going to go directly into the ground. So what you want is an ability to clear that fault or stop that path to ground. And traditionally, that's done again with a fuse, and it's called a cutout. So, when the fuse activates, it actually flips open and falls down so that you can visually see it. And for example, when I worked at Tampa Electric, if there was a storm, then we had storm duty. And folks would have a designated area, and you drive around and you see where the cutout is open. And then you know that that's the area that had a fault. And then you would send a crew in there to clear the tree off the line or fix the power line or anything like that. Still today, that is is pretty much still the technology. So the key for that is, number one, it has to be visually seen. And the other thing is that there's no technology that can go back to a, a central command center and say, this is where the fault is, that's where the fault is. Now we bring into the current time with these self-healing networks. And what that does is it puts intelligence on the line. And instead of using these, these fuses with cutouts, you would have uh, what's called a, re- a smart recloser. So in this case, like in your house, if you remember the real old days, you used to have fuses in your basement. Hmm. Uh, and you'd have to physically replace the fuse. Now it's a, it's a circuit breaker.
0: Yeah, and you just put the switch, circuit breaker yeah,
1: back yeah. so these reclosers actually uh will it's like a circuit breaker but it it has a timer in it and it will because it, it if it opens a circuit then you're you're out of power forever but if it was just an intermittent fault like a tree branch falling on the line then you don't want you don't want to black out the whole neighborhood so these these reclosers have timers typically they'll They'll wait for 10 seconds, and then they'll close back in on the fall. Okay. So my wife used to think I was a genius during during these power outages because, you know, you'd see the power go out, and then she's like, oh, we have a blackout. It's going to be a while. And then I'd say, no, count to 10, and then we'll see. Well, she count to 10, the lights would come back on half the time. The other half the time is what happens when the fault isn't cleared. So if the tree actually falls on the line, it's not a branch, it just hits it. Then the fault's there, so the recloser closes back in, sees the fault again, and then it, it'll open. Typically, it'll do that a couple of times. I was going to say, does
0: it do it more than once? Yeah,
1: usually yeah. it'll do it twice. And yeah. then and then it what's called locks out. Okay. So the smart the smart meters now, or the, the self-healing networks, uh, that will now that recloser is smart enough to know geographically where that happened. Hmm. So there's like GPS is hooked into this and 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 then it sends a signal back to the central command center that says you have a fault on this line and then you don't have to you don't have to guess as to where it
0: is. So if I'm if that's in my street and It doesn't necessarily mean then that the network's going to heal itself where the fault is. So if I'm in that area directly where that particular branch is, my house is still going to be without power and it's still going to need somebody to come and fix whatever's happened. It's just everybody else on that network that historically may have been out for an hour while someone came and worked out where the fault is. Basically, they've all got their power back. Yeah. within these one or two yeah. shots of this recloser exactly
1: that's why the, the term is a little
0: yeah it's yeah nothing's healing it's just basically it's not, yeah. a, fault is a fault.
1: it's yeah it's a great term sectionalizing yeah so the fault is still there and until you send someone out with a chainsaw to cut the tree off the power line it's still there it doesn't yeah. heal that part of the grid but the whole other grid can be sectionalized around that and that, that's how the grid can heal.
0: Yeah. Question on these reclosers, then, when they close. In Australia, we used to have scenarios where the birds would be sat on the line and the snake would see the birds and fairly often would climb the pole with the snake to get to the birds.
1: Man, I'm glad I never lived
0: there. And Australia. the snake would ground the power line and cause an outage, but it would be stuck to the line and the pole. So they'd have to go and pull the the fried snake off the the top of the power line. When those things reclose, how much power did they have to clear the line? So, I mean, not necessarily like a snake or it could be, but let's say a a tree branch. Maybe it's just a branch that's sat across the three lines. Would these things blow something like that off the power line or not?
1: Well, it brings to a new newer reclosers actually are smart about where they reclose. So our grid is called the AC grid alternating current. So it's going to actually go through a zero, what we call a zero crossing. So there'd be zero voltage on it twice every 60 seconds. So our, our power grid is, has a frequency of 60 hertz. In the U.S. In the U.S. In yes. the rest of the world is 50 hertz, or most of the rest of the world. Which means that 120 20 times a second, it'll go through a point where the voltage is zero. So if you can time if you can time that recloser on to reclose at the zero crossing, then it doesn't put a whole bunch of power across whatever that fault was. And then if you if you have good sensing technology, you'll say, "Well, now the voltage starts going up after it goes through this cycle, and oh my God, it, it, there's still a fault there, and then I open up again." Yeah. Um, so. But you bring a good point. That, I mean, besides trees, uh, the second biggest cause of, of transformer outages is, is animals, squirrels in particular. So there's, yeah, they transformers are warm and uh, they're they're high, so the squirrels can get up the there. The squirrels and, are high. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe after they sit up there for a while, uh, I yeah, I, uh, I don't know.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. I I live in a neighborhood now. I mentioned Australia, but you know I, I lived in Switzerland, and of course in Switzerland everything's underground. So it's so rare that you even ever get a, uh, a, a light flicker because of what you described as you know trees, squirrels, animals, cars hitting a pole. If you stick it all underground, there's nothing to
1: hit, absolutely Nothing to strike. Uh, right? In Europe in Europe they have their fly- at least in in. In Switzerland, Austria, I noticed that when I, we had an offsite meeting in, in, out in the country and I'm looking around I'm like, where's all the power lines? And they, they're, it's all underground. It's a huge first cost, but they don't have outages when storms come. It just yeah. doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, where I am now in the US, down in Rhode Island, we have all overhead and I live in a neighborhood full of trees. Yeah. And the vast majority of the trees are on private land in gardens. So you can't just turn up and cut them down. And I would say we have two to three power cuts a year, and there can be anything up to last year. I think the longest was two days. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, and it's, as you say, it's all trees hitting the lines and bringing the network down.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very well documented that if you want a reliable system, you have a good tree trimming program. Yeah. Even on the transmission side, the last big blackout that we had, when was it, in the early 2000s? In the northeast they were able to trace back to tree trimming practices it was a tree that fell across the transmission line of course there was a whole series of events that happened after that again when that happens you're supposed to clear the fault which means you know big circuit breakers would sectionalize that line and some of those failed and it ended up you know, being a cascading event but the the root cause of it was was a tree tree falling on the line so mm-hmm. well I've just ordered my tree
0: trimming now. Basically the supply line to the house comes across the street from the the distribution network and I already have trees growing around just my supply line. But I heard that I'm responsible for that anyway if it comes down. Really? Yeah. So that's why I don't want it to come down.
1: That direct line, most power lines are not insulated on the conductor itself. But if you look at what's, what I, what I call in Tampa, we call it the drop service, which is the service from the transformer to your house if it's an overhead. Those, you can look at those lines. Those are all insulated. So they're much safer for having a tree fall.
0: Yeah, but I looked at mine because, of course, you know, as you do being you know, very manly and in marketing, um, I wanted to get a ladder and a chainsaw. And the only thing that crossed my mind, having worked with engineers for the last 25 years, is that, you know... Don't get electrocuted. Yeah, well, first of all, <laughs> if you're in marketing, don't get a ladder and a chainsaw. Uh, stay on the ground behind the desk. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, the second thing is don't get electrocuted. And I had a look at the line. There's a, there's a bare conductor wrapped with an insulated conductor. So I'm not sure if it's some sort of ground return or earth cable that's not insulated. But it's definitely an, a non-insulated cable there, wrapped yeah, with an insulator. That's the
1: earth conductor. Yeah, that's the ground. Okay. And then the insulated conductor has the it's the live power. Okay.
0: So as long as my as long as I'm well grounded, but I no, have no I, in there. I just
1: stay away from it, Francis. <laughs> stay away from it. You sound like you don't have any confidence. I I always I don't care if a power line is insulated or not. I I treat it like it's not. Okay. better be safe than sorry
0: yeah that's true yeah. yeah i'll get the
1: tree trimming guys yeah.
0: out. yeah all right well i think we busted the self-healing topic there i mean yeah it's,
1: uh... yeah the other the other interesting thing with the, the, the more modern grid is that we're all we're moving more and more to uh, smart meters or meters that can communicate back to the utility itself because you know right now in a lot of these rural networks the only way that the Power company knows that you have an outage is you you pick up the phone and give them a call and say hey my lights are out yeah but now you know all that information that two way flow is uh, these meters can do more than just you know generate an automatic bill for you so uh, in many aspects you know that that's going to help make the grid smarter too and and help you to restore power quicker. You have a smart meter. I do not have a smart meter. Why don't, don't you
0: have a smart meter? I
1: don't, I guess I, I am. So on I'm sure a, you
0: can get one for free. I mean, Vermont's all no, about Well, the meter, efficiency. Owned, the meter is The meter
1: is, at least where I am, the meter is owned by the power company. But have and they not tried to offer you a no, smart meter? No. I, I, I'm on a very small municipality called Lindenville Electric Department, and they have a meter reader. That, You're still on 12 volts, so aren't you, of uh, that? Yeah um, I, I still, yeah, it's a modern grid. They just have a meter reader that comes and reads it. So that's, that's yeah. fun.
0: And just for the listeners out there, to give you an idea, Tom Prevo lives in, if you remember in Yogi Bear, the park ranger, uh, but his log cabin. Basically, that is Tom Prevo's house. If you go up there, he's in a, a big, long cabin off a dirt road that's usually in mud season or snow season or... Right now, we're what in else? what we call stick
1: season. What's stick season? Stick season is between fall foliage and winter. So all you have is sticks in the the forest because all the leaves have come off and there's no snow on the ground, so it's an ugly season. It's Stick season is almost as ugly as mud season.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you do have a great way up here of really, I mean, you know, there's a phrase in, uh, I don't know if it's a US phrase, but it's, you know, calling a spade a spade. And I I do like the creativity around the seasons up here in Vermont, (laughs) where, you know, I I come up here and uh, they tell me, no, you're in mud season. And literally, it is mud season. The roads are awash with mud. Mm. The cars are completely covered in mud. Yeah. 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 So So stick season.
1: It's a great time to to do a robbery, because the police will never know your your license plate number, because your license plate is covered with mud as well. Is that a, a tip or...? (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 no experience there. No experience. Okay. Well, moving
0: on from the self-healing stuff and uh, and the technology. I one other story this week, and it's interesting because it's a. A great customer of Wideman here in North America is down at Hitachi South Boston plant. They announced a multi-million dollar, I think 37 million, 37, yeah, 37 so million dollar expansion of their transformer manu-
1: dollars,
0: yeah, of their uh, transformer manufacturing facility down there distribution transformers right predominantly
1: cans or padman no i know that factory is uh so tachi has many different factories in north america and they kind of they kind of specialize on different size of transformers so south boston is is on what i would call small power Hmm. so they don't make the Distribution transformers, that's the transformer that you see outside your house. That's Jeff Up on the City. For pole. Hitachi, is that's it? in Jeff City, yeah. yeah. Either poles or pads. So depending like you I don't know in your neighborhood. It's, it's cans, okay. Yeah. But if it's an underground network, then you'll have you'll have what's what's called a pad mount transformer, which is still a distribution transformer. If you look inside, they're built about the same way. But in South Boston, they're, they're making the next size bigger. So that would be like the size of the transformer that feeds this factory, that feeds your local mall. The, and primarily the expansion in South Boston is, that size transformer is the transformer that's used on the renewable space. Ah, so, so it's a, do, you think, do you think that the
0: specific investment in that Hitachi site could be driven by renewables? I'm sure of it,
1: yeah. Okay. Windside, solar farms. Wind and solar both, yeah. Interesting. So they're in that crossover line between large distribution and, and small power, which is a real... In the old days, that was not... It wasn't a sweet spot because the market for that size transformer, again, was, was the edge of industry, shopping malls, stuff like that. But now with all of this renewable then you need a generator, like for a wind, wind transformer or wind tower, you need a transformer for every wind turbine. So it, that will take the voltage from the wind turbine, which is typically around, say, 14,000 volts, and then that'll step it up to a voltage that now you can transmit it long distances.
0: Hmm. Okay. And I guess with any expansion, it's going to take time. And, of course, we have a labor shortage in most of the world right now, but certainly here in the U.S.
1: We're seeing it with all of our, manufe- all of our customers. Um, and I, it'll be, you know, when I read about the expansion that they want to do in South Boston, that was the first thing that came to mind is you can put bricks and mortar and put a bunch of capital equipment in. But uh, it'll be interesting if they're going to find have the labor pool there to enable them to utilize this expansion. <laughs> It'll be a challenge, and it's something we'll have to watch. The labor shortage transcends from folks in the in the factory itself. Uh, making transformers fairly specialized business. I mean, when you when you're actually doing the, the labor part of it, so it's it's a high end on the specialized labor, and then of course. You're going to need engineers and maybe even some marketing people. I don't know. No, somebody's got to this? sell them,
0: right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, it's a challenge. And, and I just I just uh, read a government report that was talking about the expansion of the grid with all these renewables. And it's really driving the market. And so the transformer market that we're in is great right now. It's, it's as busy as it's been probably in the last 40 years. However, it's constrained by labor. That's the biggest constraint. Yeah, and I'm sure in future podcasts, that's definitely going to be a topic.
0: And maybe we get some people on to talk about that because, I mean, we're all talking about labor shortages, whether it be Weidman, whether it be our customers that we visit, whether it be other companies in our industry. Everybody, I think, is experiencing the same and trying to understand that. Is, is difficult, so maybe we we get somebody on Tom to yeah. to talk about
1: maybe, at some point. Yeah, and and I I think maybe we'll go on to another subject. But I myself and a couple other folks from the industry, we're we're talking about some novel approaches to try to work together as an industry rather than individually as a company to try to enhance this labor pool. Hmm. Yeah, more to come on that, but. uh, You know, I think that we have to start thinking outside the box as far as this labor stuff.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely come back to that, Tom. And my final bit of news today, and it's not really current news, but it's something that that interested me being the marketing guy, is, you know, I read in California last month, well, September it was, I think, that they were advising people not to charge their electric vehicles at certain times. (laughs) But what I found very interesting is um, that it was the transmission and generation side that was basically warning the, the distribution companies and end users of energy to stop charging electric vehicles. Because, I mean, I don't know what the term is, but I mean, I would say run out of power, um, but maybe there's a more sophisticated term. But how does a transmission company run out of power? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, it's the...
0: Other than everything switches off.
1: Well, I mean, it, the power grid is, is extremely complex, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this quite a bit in, the, in these podcasts. But the basic premise of, of our power grid is that it's instantaneous. So if you plug in your laptop or turn on a light bulb, somewhere someone has to generate that additional power instantaneously to when you demand it. Hmm. And if you turn, now let's take instead of a light bulb, let's say it's, let's say a thousand electric vehicles Hmm. that everyone wants to charge when they come home from work, which is kind of what's going to, what's happened out. The fear is what what was going to happen in California is that about instantaneously, because everybody gets home from work about the same time, you know, all of a sudden you've got this, significant demand on the system at the same time instantaneously that extra power has to get generated and if the power can't be generated or purchased from another area that has excess generation hence how why the transmission grid gets involved then it's a fan what dictates the power is when you when you have You have too much demand and not enough energy, the frequency, as I said, 60 hertz, Mm -hmm. the frequency starts getting lower and lower and lower. And as the frequency gets lower, then the stability of the system starts to decrease. And ultimately, there's protection of the system because all of these motors that are on there are dependent on running at that 60 hertz. And so you don't want to ruin... You know all of your all of your big industrial equipment so there is there's automatic relays we call it but monitors on the grid that will when they see this frequency dip they'll start disconnecting parts of the grid Mm -hmm. so what happened in california was that they you know this is always in forecast so they know you know they they know how much generation that they have within their system they know how much contracted power they can bring in over the transmission lines and if the projected load exceeds that then they have to have a plan to be able to shed that load so in california they they said "Ooh, we're going to be at that limit because it was when it was was the heat wave fires yeah, yeah we have a colleague out there and he you know it was 120 degrees in sacramento it was just just unbelievable so without you know all that demand from from the, the heat, uh, they probably had some generating units that were offline for maintenance. Yeah, we're gonna get into renewables and how good they are or how bad they are, but they're not dependable. So as the grid operators are saying, you know what what's gonna be my scenario tomorrow? If if it's not a windy day, I can't count on all those wind turbines,
0: right? Yeah. So, Or if it's not sunny. Or if it's yeah. not sunny. Exactly. You know what? Rather embarrassingly, Tom, I will say that having worked in the industry for 25 years, what you just said actually completely took me by surprise because I never thought of that. I mean, the fact that generation has to meet demand. The question is then, Are we? how frequently are we adjusting generators to meet power demand? So in other words, are we are we turning stations down overnight and ramping them back up at 5 a.m. in the morning? Or is, I mean, maybe this is a bit too much of a complex question to ask randomly. Well, but, you know, you, you made it sound like we need more power. Let's turn up the generator or buy it from another region. Right. Or is it permanently running at a certain level and we just lose a lot? Well, how does that work?
1: Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and actually, it was a, a journal of engineering or something like that. I can look it up, but they 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 said that the, the electric power grid is engineering marvel of the century, it, and it's just it, it's just incredible. And so what you end up having is you have base generation, typically things like nuclear power plants. You you just set a baseload. Usually the economic power generators are, are baseload. The easy way, easiest way to adjust is like for hydros. We have some hydro plants mm-hmm. that are right here that are uh, on the Connecticut River, and, and they're in automatic mode. So they will automatically allow more water to come through with, if they see the demand increase so or not. So I hydros are, are classic for that uh, power control. And then previously like gas peaker plants, then I yeah, guess yes, so you can switch yes, on and off. right.
0: Okay. So well, I we have
1: those, and then, but the whole complicated thing that complicates that is renewables, because if if think about it, if you've got a whole bunch of solar generation, and all of a sudden a storm comes through and and you lose it all instantaneously, then instantaneously somewhere on, on your network you have to compensate for that with with some type of generation, typically fossil generation. Mm-hmm. So as much as we want to have renewables, we, we need to keep in mind that we need to have a backup.
0: Yeah. Well, that brings me on to another topic, Thomas. We talked about EV cars and charging. And, of course, that's a topic very close to my heart. Yeah.
1: I know. You just got one.
0: Now, well, of it's course. It's a Jeep, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jeep. Jeep. And it's a PHEV. Plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, but that means it has an engine as well. Okay. I wasn't quite ready to go all in, but tell us first, Tom. I mean, obviously you're at the cutting edge of innovation, technology. You uh, pioneer in the energy sector. In fact, I we, we moved rooms, or else we would have been surrounded by Tom's awards from this industry. So, of course, I mean, over to you, Tom. I mean, tell us, what do you drive?
1: I drive a Toyota Tundra 5.7 liter V8 on a good day. It gets about 17 miles per gallon, but it gets me up my road when uh, when the plow chocks haven't been able to go out and I can make it to work. And so haul a deer? I can haul a deer, I can haul my camper, <laughs> I can do all sorts of things. Okay, yeah. so... But um, I can tell you that I, I envision that at some point in my life, I will own an electric I don't think you're going to have a it'll chance. Be a tr- it'll be a truck, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, there's the new Hummer and, uh, yeah, yeah, and the Ford yeah.
0: Lightning
1: and the GM. Yeah, the Ford, the Ford the, there's is a, going re, a, coming a, out. A, a Rian, too. Rian. Rian. Ah, Rivian. Rivian. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a cool truck. That, that's a really cool truck if the company doesn't go under. Yeah. They had 100% recall on those. hmm
0: well, I can tell you my, I, first of all, I mean, price comes into it. These trucks are phenomenally expensive. And, you know, one of the things that when I went out looking to dip my toe in is to find something that could see, you know, 2.4 children, you know, the, the concept of having back seats and...
1: You have a fourth of a tenth of a child? No, job? no, you don't. You see, this is a British thing. 2.4
0: children basically means two parents and two kids. I have never understood that saying, two, two point, point four children. poor yeah, well, children? Yeah. It oh. means two, you know, so I can get two kids in the back. Okay. Why
1: do you say, so I can get two kids I, in the I back? just wanted to test you with a yeah. new British
0: saying. Yeah. It's part of your education, Tom. So I went out and picked, a, you know, a, a car. But of course, at the same time, as you talked about, I'm thinking about all these discussions around whether we're actually going to be able to charge it next summer. Because there's more and more of these things turning up in our neighbourhood. Not necessarily the Jeep, but people buying Teslas and you know the new VW ID yeah. something. Or and I see more and more yeah, of them. Even, plugged the, in.
1: even the Chevy was Bolt, Chevy, Chevy Bolts, Bolt, yeah. yeah, yeah. So and those are fairly uh, they're attainable. I mean, they're not that yeah, expensive. I mean,
0: the the Chevy Bolt was the problem with that for me is it was a bit small. But it was a backup. Couldn't put
1: two point four kids in it.
0: No, put 2.4 <laughs> kids in. No, I mean, the, the other thing for me was having an all-wheel drive. That little Chevy Bolt is only available in two. No. And I, I wanted something I could flick into, four-wheel drive, because we get a bit of snow in the winter and I okay. come up here regular to punish you. So, um, yeah, so I want an all-wheel drive. But what I will say is, what I have come to discover is that, first of all, I am being fleeced for my electricity. And second of all, Never buy a box on wheels that's carting around four-wheel drive systems if you want to be efficient, because that car is not efficient. And I've worked some numbers for you here, Tom, and you'll be very impressed with my abilities here to calculate this.
1: You took an engineering view of it?
0: No, no, not at all. You'll see shortly. It's a very marketing view. (laughs) So I have a 17-kilowatt-hour battery in my Jeep, and we'll throw a picture up online so you can see. It's a Jeep Wrangler basically stock standard Wrangler that you know see around for the last however many years since World War II I think and it's the same car with some batteries thrown in it and a a plug at the front to plug it in but we'll throw some pictures a band of Tom's V8 Tundra as well so that you can see what we're comparing but so what I worked out Tom is I have a 17 kilowatt hour battery they will never allow it to drop to zero the minimum it will drop to is two kilowatt hours so, when I charge it, technically, the maximum... what amp,
1: happens when it hits two kilowatts.
0: It, it cuts the batteries. It just stops. Yeah.
1: No, no that, it switches to at... the
0: engine. It has an engine as well, a gasoline engine.
1: Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. okay. So, the 15 kilowatts, okay. I get about somewhere in the summer. This is real world data now, Tom. I've had the car long enough to study this. So, I get about 25 miles on average on all electric. So, in the summer, maybe I get 30. In the winter, when it's really cold, maybe 21. So,
1: it's fully charged. Fully charged. You head down the road. Yeah. When you hit 25 miles, it, it switches, switches over to gas. To gasoline,
0: yeah. But okay. you've got to think. I mean, a lot of my friends have said, why do you? Why would you want a car that only does 25 miles on all 11? That was what I was going to ask. How many days a week do you drive more than 25, 30 miles? in your pickup truck.
1: Yeah, for me it's only it's less than ten miles to and from work. So and I guess you could charge at work, right? If you were exactly. going to this factory. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's so the that concept. makes
0: sense, yeah. Yeah. And and the concept is that and I can tell you it's true to some extent. I, I don't put gas in more than every two, three months. And when I do, it's it's usually I mean, sometimes I force the motor to run. Because if I'm driving, for example, 40 miles, I'll, if I'm on the freeway for the mid-20 miles, I'll put the engine on. I can actually push a you know, hit button and switch it to the engine. Use the 20 miles on the freeway, which is fairly economical, 65 miles an hour. Then when I come off the freeway at the other end and I still have another 10 miles to run, I put it back on battery because that stop-start miles, which are typically less efficient with a gas engine. So anyway, back to... The mileage story. Let's take the 25 miles as the average, right? Guess what my energy cost is in Rhode Island per kilowatt hour, Thomas. Now, I know you have an idea, but you live in Vermont, which predominantly we talk about Bernie Sanders and the Democrats. Vermont
1: has a very, very high uh, energy cost. I think it's got to be one of the highest in New England. But I think... Mm -hmm. I think in Rhode Island you're even higher. But I, I'm paying like somewhere between 14 and 16. And that's pretty high because I know in Ohio it's down between 8 and 10. So I can beat where are you at? I can beat you, Tom. <laughs> I am at,
0: as of today, since the 1st of October, I think, Rhode Island Energy. Who is owned by now PPL, so Pennsylvania Power Light. They recently they were bought it from National Grid. Grid. Exactly, yeah. They just bought them. Their bulk power purchase agreement had expired, so I'm not putting this on PPL. I mean this is this is just a state of play at the moment. But what was interesting is my power is 30 cents a kilowatt hour today. Double yours. Wow.
1: Okay, so now I know where you're going with this.
0: So, of course, ladies and gentlemen,
1: you got to sell your Jeep to me.
0: No, I don't. (laughs) I, I just need to never use the electric motor and just run on gasoline. No, no. But okay, let's take a look at this. So it takes me. I have 15 kilowatt hours per 25 miles. Okay. now that works out per miles. If we look at the kilowatt hours on all electric, 18 cents a mile now. You may wonder, well, I don't know what that is. Is that, how does that equate to miles per gallon? Well, let me give you an example. I worked out, I have a, my wife's car is a Toyota SUV, eight seater, mid-size.
1: For 2.4 kids.
0: For my 2.4 kids and their sports friends and everybody okay. else to cart around. And that is a, I don't know, 3.5 V6, typical Toyota motor. 19 miles per gallon is the average combined that thing gets and it's still with gas prices high today so $3.75 a gallon I'm still only running at 19 cents a mile so the jeep on all electric is one cent a mile cheaper which over my 10,000 miles a year that's a hundred dollar saving so I may look cool because okay. I have got the roof off and it's, it's all black. It's green, though. Well, the right? emissions, exactly. Yeah. So the you're right. The answer to that is it's running the equivalent of driving a, from an emissions perspective, like a 45 to 50 MPG, MPG car. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. So the emissions are significantly less. Yeah, right. But I also just want to say about Naughty Rhode Island, their energy generation is coming predominantly from Quebec, and from upstate New York. And only 12% of that is renewable. So 53% is gas, which is, oh,
1: you know, the cleaner of the I think fossil fuels it's guys in the run. definition of renewable, because most of the Quebec is, is hydro. Yeah, we only have 7% hydro. Then we're, well, I mean, Quebec's almost all, they call it Hydro-Quebec. I mean, that's why we have the, the Maybe
0: the buying it from nuclear, Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> Competitor. Yeah. But anyway, that's what I can tell you. So, I mean, but what I will say is the mistake I made, and here comes the consumer advice, Tom. If I'd have bought or could have afforded a Tesla Model Y, which is a purpose-built electric vehicle, I would be paying, based on some data I got from somebody I know with a Model Y, on my energy tariff around $0.09 cents per mile instead of 18 but So I would have all, halved
1: it. But you're all in
0: You're all in, all electric.
1: no, there's no gas backup. Nope. So when
0: you're in your... And you look like you're driving a bubble, right? Yeah. Whereas I look like I'm semi-manly.
1: And you can go off-roading. I can Uh, go off-roading, And if you run out of power, you can send your wife off with a can of gas (laughs) and go get some more petrol, but you're not going to be able to get a long enough extension cord to... (laughs) To the nearby farmhouse. Do you mind plugging that in? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty tough to offer without... And it's all batteries, I think. I, I don't know. Well and the I mean the
0: the, the other one is this, this Chevy bolt that you talked about. I mean it's small, it's light, it's a hatchback. That thing's running at eight cents a mile. So it's less than half on all electric. <laughs> As long as they don't spontaneously combust. Well, there is that, yeah. But I, I think just for uh, prudence there, I believe Chevrolet have a fix for that. Okay, all right. And um, all cars are under recall. And uh, it wasn't actually Chevrolet, I heard. It was, yeah, the I battery think it was a battery manufacturer. I think yeah. a Korean LG or uh, one of those yeah. uh, that manufactured the batteries, and they were the, they were the issue. Okay, so consumer advice is if you really are going to buy an electric vehicle, buy a real electric vehicle that was designed to be one and then carry around a very long extension cord.
1: Yes, or throw a gas tank and a generator in
0: the, in the back. Of yep, that's your other option.
1: But you, you actually,
0: let me ask you a question, because this bugs me as well, because in Rhode Island at the moment, we're all being offered thousands of dollars towards solar. And of course, the whole topic there is, instead of paying my 30 cents a kilowatt hour, my payback on solar based on that rate is actually quite good. Should we all be looking at, sticking generators on our rooftops and forgetting about, you know, central power plants. Oh, maybe we're going to talk about this. Yeah, in the we
1: moment. can talk about it some more. I mean, it goes back to my statement that ultimately uh, you can't depend on 100% solar. I mean, I think right now the it's due to the government incentive programs that allow you to economically put rooftop solar on your house. When those incentive programs go away, I don't. Believe that you'll see it happen much, especially in cloudy states like Vermont.
0: But isn't the concept that the incentive bridges the gap while the price of the technology comes down?
1: That's the concept, yeah. I mean, solar technology, I was just reading uh, last week, it's like at 15% of what it was five years ago. It's coming down tremendously, given that most of that stuff's coming from China now, and we, we're not allowed to. I mean, there's a whole lot of geopolitics involved mm. in, in that as well. I, I can speak to Vermont. I, I don't know what the programs are in in Rhode Island, but it, it, it makes sense in my mind. If you, if you want to stick these things on your roof, you just have to get up there in the middle of the wintertime, make sure you brush them off. Oh, get the snow off them, yeah. You're yeah. not going to have any
0: power being generated. When Do they not have enough heat in, in an element in them for it to melt the snow? No. Well, I mean, also we should all be looking to Elon Musk's roof tiles, right? He has solar roof tiles or shingles or whatever you call them in the U.S. Yeah, I'm
1: not familiar with them, but I, I know you're a big Elon that... Musk fan, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll table that for another day as well. <laughs> so, what so are yeah. these shingles? Shingles that uh, the solar? Holds, no, is you solar? take the whole roof
0: off and you just re-roof it like you would a normal house, okay. but the the shingles have got solar panels in them. And it's basically instead of putting a new roof and solar panels on for thirty thousand dollars, you can spend fifty and have his solution. Yeah. I'm sure it's I mean, I've heard good things. Meaning if you lose a single roof tile, that's okay. So you know, over time So what's the life of these tiles? Oh
1: thirty years. So they they're not like your tradition. I I don't you know. No, it's twenty years of traditional panels. Yeah, so that's panel, not not the roof. Yeah. Like a shingled roof, is, it's pretty high-end roof to get a 20-year roof, Yeah, a shingled
0: roof. So you're getting 30 years and a warranty for 30 years. But it's $50,000 for your new roof. Okay. So, and what I also heard is they don't generate as much as traditional panels. Yeah, but that. the benefit is, you know, in that 30 years, you're going to lose a panel at some point. And the idea is with these that you can lose individual shingles and they're not, it doesn't affect the ones around it
1: interested in how they're
0: all connected together well that can be another exciting engineering install for another podcast episode how shingles are tied together Um, but that brings me on finally to the one of the topics closest to my heart tom and one that we've always bonded over more and it's certainly not engineering or even insulation to be honest it's probably your brewing beer beer and yeah, i
1: that's actually my favorite subject
0: yeah and that's well for the the people listening i'd like to give an introduction to that because um we had thought about having a beer of the month concept i think we I should think we do, the, do that yeah, yeah let's do it let's but, do it but i
1: will probably need to move the podcast away from yeah factories from and the beers. factory yeah. yeah i don't think that uh weidman would be too happy if we started consuming my beer on campus
0: no possibly not but tell us a bit about how you got into brewing and what what are people can expect from beer of the month in the coming months
1: okay so one of the things and I'm not I'm not a prepper uh, let's What's put prepper? it that way you don't know what a prepper is no prep a pig <laughs> yeah, could be you can prep with a pig okay you can prep with a lot of things so you're preparing to be isolated from society. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, one of these that Prepper. thinks the world's going to end and you need to be ready. And so, you're... Yeah, okay. I have
1: three years worth of food in my basement and uh, okay, yeah, I've got a bomb shelter and I have my own way of generating power. And I mean, I would have thought that brewing beer, though, would be the last of your concerns. I mean, you would
0: think having fresh water, food, maybe, I don't know, some kind of sanitary system,
1: but brewing beer... You don't like beer, like I couldn't live without beer. No, I, I, I mean, like come beer on. But I, That would be like the, the end of days. But if the world's
0: ending, up. I'm not going to be rummaging around for a flashlight and my beer.
1: <laughs> well, you and I think differently. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, carry on. You're not a prepper. Anyways, I said I'm not a prepper, so I, that's not what drove me. But I like, I like to do make my own stuff. So I have a very nice garden. I, I'm a hunter, so I typically like to put some meat in the freezer, and I I like make my own sausage, I make my own bread, and so I, I make my own beer. Cause Are you sure you're not a prepper? Yeah, no, no, I'm not a prepper. Uh, but maybe I am. So I we need a Bake, bake Off challenge, no? Oh, you bake bread. I do bake bread but the problem is I I'm trying to lose some weight so I, well I did I I, I haven't have yeah. eaten a piece of bread now in, in like 4 weeks and how and is the, the I I think my week my shaking has stopped <laughs> um, because I I still on the weekends I still consume some beer but bread is no longer
0: how does an engineer go about dieting Oh,
1: healthy living, let's say. Oh, it's very easy. You, you just put structured? it all in a spreadsheet and it's calories in versus calories out. And then you add some exercise on top of that. And and then get on a scale every morning and record it on your graph. And Sounds it's very scientific.
0: Terrible. Yeah. You mean you don't just go to Facebook and download the latest, uh, you know, the latest, the greatest fitness
1: to. I have to develop it all on my own. It's a... So
0: back to the brewing. How did so you get into brewing, and what brewing. can our listeners expect? So, I, by the way, sorry, Tom, we're going to have to have a bake off or something. Do you take an engineering approach to baking? Is no, it very precise?
1: No, less of an engineering approach. When I was when I was a child, my, my father uh, owned a, a bakery and restaurant. Oh. Uh, no, so, Um here in St Johnsbury, yeah, yeah. So that's what we were brought up and doing so, each each child. There were six of us. Each child had a specialty. My older brother, uh, who ended up being a chef, he was the uh, he was the donut guy. The donut guy. The donut guy. So and then, but I I really didn't like being around that big vat of hot fat. So I ended up being the bread guy, and my uh, my younger brother was the pastry guy. So we all had our specialty. You
0: were I'm surprised that you weren't the one for the hot oil, given that you spent the rest of your career around hot oil. And
1: yeah, when I was when I was a young child, I was severely burned with with hot oil. So really? I, I, yeah. In the bakery? No, no, it was at home. It was actually bacon fat. Yeah. Oof. My my mother was making bacon in a in a deep frying pan. It uh, spilled on it. Ouch! Yeah. Oof! It hurt. It hurt. <laughs> Yeah. Well. So, anyways, it I, I wasn't real, real crazy. So, yeah. So, I, I, uh, I just wanted to start it as a hobby, and particularly my, my second, I did it for a while and then get out of it, and then my, my oldest son went to school for biotechnical, not biological engineering, but biotechnical engineering, and then he he got into brewing as well. So that kind of revive me and then I, I kind of had to eat. So we, we're always talking beer. He actually now works for Anheuser-Busch and uh, is one of their operations managers yeah. down in Merrimack, New Hampshire. Mm. So every time he's home we have to talk beer and my wife gets, what are you guys talking about?
0: But I thought those guys at Anaheim, An- An- Anheuser-Busch. Anheuser-Busch, I thought they were famous for not producing beer. They sort of produced a fizzy brownish water that, came out of a tap in most bars
1: right I mean, yeah bud light that's, yeah that's, that's their the highest yeah. uh, that's, but actually in order for them to they were they were being their sales were going down significantly with all this modern micro beer that mm. was being produced so they went Deep around and bought so. up all, a lot of these micro breweries. and the brewery where my son works is a fairly small one within the Within the Anheuser-Busch realm, so they get to do a lot of the specialty. They they actually will brew Goose Island, for example. Um, mm, yeah, IPA. if you look at it, it's an IPA. They they have other beers, um, but they they will contract brew Goose Island. Where my son? Works. So it's a bit like the Heineken model in Europe.
0: Where, yeah, where they just went out and bought up every popular smaller brand. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly.
1: Huh. But. Beer in my house is better than all that stuff anyway, so.
0: So what are, you, what are you brewing at the moment? What are we going to taste next month? So, right. don't Tell
1: me an IPA. No, no. Well, I always have tap. so I always have three beers on tap. I built a keezer, and that can be a future episode where I help build a, a keezer. What's a keezer? A keezer is keg put in a freezer, hence the word keezer. And we will save that for another podcast. Okay. We can a, do that
0: one live from yeah. the loft cabin.
1: We can. We can. We'll have a look we at your keezer. We can look right at the keyser. I can say how how it was uh, developed and manufactured. I can even pull out what my cost was.
0: So. Oh, that would be very interesting. Yeah, I kept all that yeah, I seat, mean, you, that's, that's, that's the well. difference between a marketing guy and an engineering oh, guy, right? Yeah. That.
1: But the key is that I can always have three. So I, I brew everything in. In the kegs now I used to do bottles but it was way too much work so my kegs are five gallons and so I always have three five gallon kegs on tap in my keyser at all times except for right now because my son came home with a bunch of his buddies and they were only here for three days but they all of my all of my beer is empty right now so okay. I, have, I have some brewing uh, to some do brewing ahead to of do me. For next month. So brewing, brewing. This is what's going to be brewed in the next in the next month, hopefully. A Kolsch. You you've yeah. had my Kolsch. I like Kolsch, right? yes. And you've had my Kolsch. I yeah. It's very good. Um, very refreshing. It's a German beer uh, from the Cologne region. Typically drank in, in small. Oh, you bought me some yeah, Kolsch glasses. Glasses. Colch thank glasses. Thank you very yes. much. Oh, you're more than welcome, yeah. Ten ounce glasses yeah. because is this small. is one of the few beers in germany that's recommended to drink very very cold and very fast mm. hence the small 10 ounce glasses so i have colch glasses that we can use to enjoy a colch beer so that's good uh my other one is a clone so mm-hmm. i co- copy beers there is a it's called spotted cow it's a clone of a Cream ale from the Wisconsin area, so it's not an IPA. It's not real strong. Cream ale a bit British, actually. Uh, they bit, do cream ales sort of and uh, I mean, British. The, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the the American cream ales are not as bitter as the British cream They're distinctly okay. different. What is that? Your bread as well. You you worked
0: in a bakery. Why is? I mean, as a British family living in, in the U.S. now, we find all the bread terribly sweet, unless you go to a very specific, like, European bakery or something. Was your bread sweet? No. It was more like the European, right. almost borderline...
1: I, I, I have a sweet bread recipe that I would do. It's a, it's called a farmhouse white, mm. um, and uh, it's very popular with Americans because it's very sweet. It's... Really? it's we're going to have to have a bake-off
0: episode. Oh, cool! The engineering mm. approach mm. to baking versus the marketing approach, for sure. Yeah, it'd be. be
1: interesting to see what your, your mind of the comes out. like,
0: yeah, frosted. <laughs> All, right, well, look, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, look. Last thing. Wait, wait. My third oh. beer. Oh, oh your it's third my beer. New, it's right? an we IPA. had a We had, had a Cream Ale. New England IPA. And a New England IPA. IPA. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll skip that one. Yeah. I'm not an
1: IPA. But the beer that we will drink next, that's ready to be kegged, is 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 I should call it a November fest because I didn't get it out of my no, lagering. Totally, yeah. So there's ales and loggers. Loggers take longer, and they're they're actually fermented at uh, close to freezing. So my October has been lagering now for about five weeks, and it's going to be coming with me to my hunting camp on Friday. So. Okay,
0: Tom, the final piece of our podcast today is a segment that we'd like to introduce. So I don't think I know anybody who knows his Transformer components as well as you. Although I say that, maybe Marcel Souter. He is a components man. So we would like to introduce a segment called Touch My Components. Oh, boy. And of course, <laughs> Touch My Components is without seeing the physical component But purely with the sense of feel, touch, smell, you will be able to tell us what part that is from a transformer, what component that is. Are you up for that, Tom?
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. Tom, (laughs) is this a highlight of your career?
1: (laughs) So this uh, this is what I call engineering solution, Francis. I know how, uh, how much you wanted me to wear a blindfold. Just. But I searched high and low for where a blindfold would be. So I managed you... to find this paper napkin. Just and, look that and way. And my please readers. Don't.
0: Just look that way, yeah. Thank you. For those of you who are watching this on YouTube, or if you're not, I encourage you to have a look. Uh, Because I don't think you will have ever seen Tom Privo quite like this before.
1: So in future, we will do something different. (laughs) No, we won't.
0: No, that is is the solution now, absolutely.
1: So, Tom. Okay, get
0: on with it, Francis. I I have a component from a Transformer, but I, I have to apologize that I only had it made today and we couldn't use a a, a customer's component because of uh, potential for contamination or damage if I uh, was walking around with it. So I had to have a brand new one made. So I'm going to pass it to you. And um, what I would like you to do is, is, you know, most people here are listening. So rather than going straight in with a guess, just describe it. Describe what you think it is, the size and so on. And then obviously you can have a guess. Yeah.
1: OK. So See. if you'd
0: like to sit back a little bit... Is it heavy? Uh, well, the mold's still on it, so it is a little bit heavy, but not too heavy. But basically, just, just put your hands out, Tom. No, no, back a bit, back a bit. Yeah, perfect. So I'm just going to put it here for you. <laughs> right, close your hands. Jeez. <laughs> <Gosh>. <laughs> so okay. what are you feeling? What are you feeling there, Tom? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> so... Huh. This is That's cold, the mold. cold as hell. That's the mold, yeah? yeah. It's like you must have put it in the freezer.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was trying to cool it down. It was hot from being dried okay. in the oven.
1: So this is what I would call um, wet molded press board. So, and this is a very common methodology we use for specialized insulation components that that are unique in shape. So we actually have to make a metal mold and then you put this, it's like almost like paper mache, if this is right. You seem very comfortable uh, with it. Yeah. Careful <laughs> yeah, uh, where yeah, you point that. You know, it's, it's got a head on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is a wet molded, this, this piece would be taken off of this mold- That's right. Used yeah. to cover an electrical contact. So this this would actually insulate that electrical contact. Um, so this is what I would call a molded. It's not a snout. Ooh, it's a molded. Uh, it's a barrier piece that, that would be used on a. I use this. This would be on core insulation, or it could be on an electrical
0: connector. Okay, Tom, very good. First of all, it is, on the record... We'll
1: take it off. It is a snout. We just want it to look like a big (laughs) dick.
0: No, it's a... (laughs) Tom, get your mind out the gutter. It's a baseball bat, (laughs) if anything, other than an insulation piece. But it's a uh, a snout. On our diagrams, drawings, that is classed as a snout. That's a mould that was taken from our thousands of molds that's down there for uh for hand molded parts and yeah that's what it was listed as why it would have a closed top i have no idea
1: yeah i don't think this is a snout because a snout is like an elephant right if you think of a snout yeah so typically that is you're coming from one shape which is like insulation that would be the top of a cylinder and then you have a lead that comes out this way this could be the precursor to a snail so this would then get molded onto another piece and this is where the lead would come out okay. so that would be my guess
0: okay very good and what is the temperature rating of that material
1: temperature rating of this material is oh. good for 120 class we just that's we just published a paper um, where we did some fundamental research to determine what the temperature class of, this is a form of press board. Uh, pressboard is, is basically thick paper. And uh, yeah, so we just did a study and never before proven what the thermal class was. And we proved that it was 120 degrees centigrade. So that means that that can be used up to 120 degrees centigrade, and it won't uh, age prematurely. And, Tom,
0: just one final question from my side. Just, you know, uh, how long has it taken you to, to discover what the thermal class of that material is? Because I, I'm not one to say that engineers move slow in this industry. Well, is it, it it's we, six months it, since we invented uh, no, this material? Is it, it 12 it, months? Uh, or it was, how long uh, we have we had this before you knew the thermal class?
1: So this material's been around for 140 years. Uh, that's how long weidman has been around. Yeah, we just came out with what the thermal class was. And in fact, that, that project in and of itself took five years. So in order to know what the thermal class is, you have to age the material. For 140 years? No, you have to age it for at least a couple of years. years. So, and then you have to make sure you did it right, so we did a second ageing.
0: Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for. You can keep that, Tom. I will need the mold back. This
1: is a weapon.
0: Yeah, I will. This is a weapon. For those of you, again, that are listening to this, I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel and have a look what Tom's playing around with here. It's not pornographic, believe me. I'm saying no more. But thank you very much for joining us in this very first podcast, Thomas. Any particular words?
1: Oh, it was a pleasure being here. I think that uh, this is going to be fun, and I look forward to uh, doing some more with you.
0: And the highlight for me was seeing you with that napkin on your face.
1: (laughs) That I'll have to look on the video. Like I said, that was pretty impromptu. uh, It's innovation. It was innovative.
0: Yeah. There's a first for everything. (laughs) so thank you again for listening we hope you enjoyed any ideas you can reach out to us or you can message us on YouTube in the comments section we recommend that you subscribe like depending on what channel you're listening to and we hope to hear from you soon Tom who is our guest on the next episode I don't know (laughs) we we need to work that one out thanks again for listening yeah thank you we'll talk to you soon bye bye take care Thanks for joining us on this, the very first Current Bun Energy podcast. We really hope you enjoyed being with us and we look forward to coming back to you with another podcast soon. Remember to subscribe so you get those notifications when the next one's available. You can also follow us on social media channels, Current Bun Energy podcast, and remember to go to YouTube to view those behind-the-scenes videos. Thanks very much and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.